This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We read the Holy Scriptures this morning in the sixth chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Dear any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, 
shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There ends our reading of the Word of God this morning. May the Lord add His blessing to our reading of the sacred scriptures. We've read this passage as the basis for the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 42. Once more, we turn to Lord's Day 42. Reading question and answer 110. What doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of his gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also, that I faithfully labor, so that I may be able to relieve the needy. It is with earthly, material things that the Eighth Commandment is concerned. The Eighth Commandment brings the will of God to bear on the earthly life of the believer. His life, his everyday life in the midst of this world. His life in the area of buying and selling. His life in the area of labor and the economy. His life in the area of commerce and banking. His life in the area of property and possessions, saving and investing, borrowing and lending. The Reformed view of the Christian life comes out in Lord's Day 42. Comes out in this Lord's Day that it is not 
the Reformed view of Christian life that we leave all contact with the world, that we flee to some mountain or some remote place on the map in order there in a small gathering of like-minded believers to pursue the Christian life. That, I say, is not the Reformed view of the Christian life. But the Reformed view of the Christian life is that we live in the world, not one with the world, but in the world. The believer ought to be involved in buying and in selling. The believer ought to be involved in banking and in business. The Reformed believer ought to be involved in labor and in the economy. The Reformed believer ought to be involved in obtaining property, in buying and selling property, and in accumulating goods. It is not, it never has been, the Reformed view of life that the believer must flee the world, a world flight mentality. But it has always been the view that the believer must be actively engaged in life in the world. But then, living in every sphere of earthly life to the praise of the glory of his God. Living in every sphere of life as one who has been redeemed by God's grace. One who is indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One who has been bought, body and soul, by the precious blood of the Son of God. The calling of the Eighth Commandment is twofold. First of all, the Eighth Commandment makes plain the will of God with respect to those things that I own, my possessions, the property that God has given to me the goods that I have obtained by means 
of my working. The Eighth Commandment calls the Christian to faithful stewardship. That aspect of the Eighth Commandment I called to your attention last week Sunday morning. But the Eighth Commandment also makes plain the will of God with respect to my neighbor's possessions. In that respect, the Eighth Commandment forbids me to steal. The thief will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the Apostle's word in the passage that we read together this morning. He writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is to that aspect of the Eighth Commandment that I call your attention this morning. The Eighth Commandment forbids us to steal. Thou shalt not steal. I call your attention this morning to God's will for the neighbor's property. Let's notice three things together this morning. First of all, God's will for the individual. Secondly, the application beyond the individual. And finally, the possibility of our doing God's will. The calling of the Eighth Commandment is to love the neighbor with respect to his property. Put negatively, the calling is that we not steal. If we are not to steal the property of the neighbor, it is presupposed that the neighbor has the right to possess his property. The prohibition of theft implies the right of private ownership. We noticed that last week. I want to remind you of that aspect of the will of God in the Eighth Commandment this morning. If it is wrong for me to take something that belongs to my neighbor, then it is implied that my neighbor has the right to possess what he possesses, to own what God has given to him. This is the principle upon which the Eighth Commandment rests, as well as the Tenth Commandment. It's his house. They are his servants. 
The possessions are his possessions. Condemned is state ownership of the possessions and the property of the citizens. This is the principle of communism and socialism. The Bible repudiates that principle. Condemned is also community of goods. That is the practice of the collective ownership of property and possessions by a group, usually a religious group. That's condemned explicitly in our Belgic Confession of Faith. At the end of Article 36, the article that deals with the magistrate at the end of Belgic Confession, Article 36, the last paragraph, we read this, Wherefore we detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people, and in general all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce community of goods, and confound that decency and good order which God hath established among men. Certain of the radical Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation set up their own communities. Communities in which all the members shared the property and the possessions. That principle of community of goods is carried out to some extent at least today by certain of the Amish and the Mennonites. That is not the Reformed view of life. The Reformed have rejected community of goods as a fundamental violation of the Eighth Commandment from the very beginning. The Eighth Commandment forbids every form of stealing. The commandment forbids the most blatant forms of robbery and theft. The Heidelberg Catechism begins its explanation of the Eighth Commandment that way. The answer, the 110th answer begins, God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate. It begins with theft and robbery. The difference between theft 
and robbery is that robbery is the more violent form of theft. Robbery is theft, but now at gunpoint or at knife point. Robbery is theft carried out by breaking into your home and rifling through your possessions. Or robbery is striking you down on the street corner in order to steal your purse and your credit cards. The magistrate has been entrusted by God with the calling to punish thieves and robbers and thus to prevent theft and robbery. Comes out here also the reformed view of the magistrate, the legitimacy of the magistrate and the calling of the magistrate. 1 Corinthians 6 establishes also that legitimate place of the magistrate in the life of the nation and in the life of reformed believers. Besides theft and robbery, the Eighth Commandment condemns embezzlement of the company's funds, shoplifting at the local Myers store or Walmart or wherever else. It condemns stealing out of someone's locker or from someone's purse, duffel bag, or out of their car. Those forms of theft are condemned by the Eighth Commandment. Forbidden by the Eighth Commandment is kidnapping, the stealing of people. In Bible times, the motive of kidnapping was usually the selling of the one who was kidnapped in order to turn a profit. That often was the motive in Bible times. Today, the motive is often a large ransom. Or the motive may be revenge. Or the motive is often, in our perverted age, sexual assault. Or the selling of the one who has been kidnapped as a sex slave. Kidnapping was a capital offense in Israel. And still today, kidnappers ought to be put 
to death. But the Eighth Commandment also condemns those forms of stealing that are more respectable, that are socially acceptable. There are the wicked tricks and devices mentioned by the catechism that are often employed by the merchants. False weights and false measures that affect the quantity of merchandise, but also poor and defective goods that have to do with the quality of the merchandise, the quality of the clothes so cheaply purchased. Condemned is charging exorbitant prices, probably by getting a monopoly on this particular good. In Nehemiah's time, he condemned the farmers who had gained a monopoly on corn and were selling corn to their fellow Israelites at exorbitant prices. He severely rebukes them. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 5. Or charging for services not rendered. The auto mechanic who charges for parts that your car did not need. Included here is false advertising, especially the advertising in our day that aims at the greed that is in the carnal nature of every one of us. The best people should have the best things. And of all people, you deserve the best. That's the line in the advertising of our day. But the Eighth Commandment also applies to those who are buying not just to the seller, but also to the buyer. Paying with false coins, counterfeiting, or overextending one's credit. What happens so often in our day, maxing out a number of credit cards, especially maxing them out with no intention of paying them. That's a sin. 
And that must be regarded by us as a sin against the Eighth Commandment. Writing bad checks with insufficient funds in the bank to cover the checks that you write would be included here. The Eighth Commandment applies to borrowing and lending. Borrowing and lending. The Eighth Commandment forbids borrowing and not paying back. Borrowing with no intention of paying back. The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, verse 21, The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. The Eighth Commandment condemns declaring bankruptcy. Declaring bankruptcy as a way of getting out from under our financial obligations. Not every form of bankruptcy is condemned, but declaring bankruptcy specifically with a view to getting out from under our legitimate financial obligations. The Eighth Commandment also has application to those who lend. Now, the Eighth Commandment does not forbid usury per se. The Catechism mentions usury towards the end of the 110th answer. But usury itself Charging interest on that which is borrowed is not condemned in itself by the Eighth Commandment. In the parable that he told, Jesus rebuked the unprofitable servant for not going to the usurers and at least gaining interest on the talent that he had given him. Not usury itself, but two things with respect to usury are condemned by the Eighth Commandment. First of all, charging exorbitant interest. And secondly, the charging of interest on money that is loaned to a poor brother in the church for his basic needs. Usury, under those circumstances, is forbidden. Leviticus 25, verses 35. And 36 apply as much today as in the Old Testament. 
And if thy brother be waxen poor, and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him, or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. The Christian employee has an obligation with respect to the Eighth Commandment. He must not steal from his employer by not giving to his employer a full day's work. Starting late, finishing early, stretching that coffee break and that lunch break, and wasting his time in between. He must not steal from his employer by taking or carelessly destroying the property of his employer. Employee pilferage, they call it. Employee pilferage. Stealing. Employee pilferage amounts to the single greatest profit loss for all businesses in the United States. It's estimated that employee theft accounts for over 60% of all inventory losses sustained by businesses. Because of this, many businesses have been forced to develop a new management position. The Vice President for Loss Prevention Many steal from their employers by coming to work in a condition in which they are altogether unable to work. Studies indicate that one in six Americans regularly comes to work having used alcohol, or abused drugs. And studies show that many employees, while on the job, abuse drugs and alcohol. The salesman must not steal by padding his expense account or by jacking up his mileage log. The Eighth Commandment forbids employees to strike against their employers. The strike is stealing. To go on strike is to violate the Eighth Commandment. From many points of view, the strike is sinful. And from many points of view, the strike is forbidden 
the child of God. The fundamental principle of the second commandment forbids the strike. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you need to condemn the ungodly strike. But the eighth commandment, as well as the fifth commandment, forbid the strike. The 111th answer teaches that the positive calling of the eighth commandment is that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may. That condemns the strike. Insurance fraud is sin against the Eighth Commandment. Falsifying claims to an insurance company is stealing, attempting to collect a huge sum in a settlement with an insurance company in order to get rich off that insurance company is stealing. It's the mentality expressed in a bumper sticker that I recently saw. Go ahead, hit me. I could use the money. The Eighth Commandment does not leave the wives and mothers out of view this morning. For them, the application of the Eighth Commandment is that in the place in which God has called them, they must labor faithfully, promoting the advantage of the neighbor. The neighbor being the children whom God has given to them, their husband. They must diligently labor in the home and in their family as keepers at home. They must not waste their time reading the trash that's on the bookshelves in the grocery stores. They must not waste the family's finances by extravagant shopping sprees, but diligently labor in the home. The Eighth Commandment includes you children in the congregation this morning. You're listening to me, aren't you? You're listening to the Word of God in the Eighth Commandment, aren't you? For you, the application is not, of course, the same as for the adults in the congregation, but there is an application that comes to you as well. For one thing, you mustn't steal at school by taking someone's answers that are not your answers or by taking someone's work that is not your work. That's stealing. You are to do your own homework. You are to arrive at the answers on the math assignment. 
plagiarism is sin against the Eighth Commandment. Plagiarism is taking someone else's ideas or writings and presenting them as your own. That's stealing, and that's forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. The issue of slavery sometimes comes up in connection with the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment applies to slavery. The owning of the person of someone as your property. The Eighth Commandment applies also to that situation. There is no question about it that God did not institute slavery in the Garden of Eden. Neither is it conceivable that there will be slavery in paradise hereafter, slavery in heaven. The Bible does not forbid slavery, but the Bible does very clearly regulate slavery. That the Bible does not condemn slavery is plain from the Ten Commandments themselves. In the Fourth Commandment, the commandment that concerns the keeping of the Sabbath, Thy manservant and thy maidservant are mentioned. Those are slaves. And again, they are mentioned in the tenth commandment. In the Old Testament, the slave was to be regarded as a member of the Israelites' household. And the fourth commandment makes that very plain. A member of one's household. And that's why, too, when God instituted circumcision in Genesis 17, his commandment was that all the members of one's household, Abraham's household, including his servants, his slaves, were to be circumcised. If that slave was a fellow Israelite in the Old Testament, then he might be held as your slave for six years only. And on the seventh year, he must be let free. It was conceivable that he did not desire to be set free. And then there was a process by means of which he was to be made the property of his master for the rest of his life. You see, the institution of slavery in the Old Testament was a way to protect 
your fellow Israelite, who had lost his possessions, who was severely in debt because the institution of slavery protected the slave. In the New Testament, too, the Word of God does not forbid slavery. There are several commands that the Apostle gives. And there's the example in the book of Philemon of the slave Onesimus, who Paul met in Rome, who came to see Paul in his imprisonment, the misery of his second imprisonment, and whom Paul, now Onesimus, having been converted to the faith, sent back to his owner Philemon. Now Philemon must receive him, not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ Jesus. I must pass by much of the rest that I wanted to say this morning because of the lateness of the hour. And I come then to the very last point of my sermon, which is the possibility of our doing the will of God in the Eighth Commandment. From everything that we have said, one thing ought to be plain this morning, and that one thing is that it is not possible for us to keep the Eighth Commandment. When the commandment is preached in such a way that application of the commandment is made to every sphere of life, it must come home to us that we cannot keep the Eighth Commandment. We're sinners, everyone, and our nature is a sinful nature. And one more quote from Martin Luther. Luther put it this way, If all thieves were to be hanged on the gallows, the world would soon be desolate, and there would be both no executioners and no gallows. The impossibility, of course, is our nature. Why do men steal? Usually it's not because they desperately need what they steal. Because they are hungry and haven't eaten in days or they need to put food on the table for their children. That's a possibility, but that is rare. Ordinarily, men steal. Why? Because of the lust of their hearts. Because they have set their heart upon that which they steal. The root is covetousness. As the Catechism says in the 110th answer, the only possibility, therefore, first of all, is that we love God. We must not love earthly things. We must love God. 
We must love God above all else. That is the only possibility. Secondly, the possibility of obedience to the Eighth Commandment is that we trust in God. The cause of stealing is the desire for earthly things. We must trust God that He will give us what we need and be content with what He gives us. Stealing is forbidden. We must seek God and put our trust in God. But there's the problem. By nature, we cannot. By nature, we do not love God and do not put our trust in God. The only possibility is the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross. There at the cross, there is repentance for thieves like you and me. And there at the cross, with forgiveness, there is also the strength of grace to fight against our sinful nature. Thank God that Jesus died for a thief and that Jesus saved a thief. One thief. There were two. The one who saw himself as a thief. The one who was sorry for his thievery. The one who cried out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and look to Jesus Christ for salvation. To that thief, Jesus spoke the word of forgiveness. My son, your sins are forgiven. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.